Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Carol Graham, uh, who's going to talk to us about her new book on happy peasants and miserable millionaires. Uh, I suppose we all know some of each, most of us anyway. Um, but of course the interesting question is how many there are uh, of each. Uh, and I think that's one of the most interesting questions in social science. Um, we, uh, we talk about these things casually. We have done for years and years and it's uh, now uh, become possible to study them systematically. And that is uh, really the central question in happiness economics is about the relation between uh, income uh, and and happiness uh, and Carol has been one of the pioneers in this field um, of course it's very fashionable now um, but uh, being a pioneer means that you did it when it was unfashionable uh, and uh, many congratulations to Carol for doing that um, she is now a professorial fellow at the uh, Brookings uh, Institution in Washington uh, and she has, is as I said one of the the leading world experts uh, on uh, economics and happiness, especially in developing countries uh, and countries emerging from communism. Uh, but today she's going to talk to us about happiness the world over. Carol. Well, um, first of all, Richard, thank you very much for the nice introduction and uh, also for, um, I think, uh, doing some inspirational work in the area yourself. Um, and indeed, it, it, the, field, the field has changed a great deal. Uh, I, I think I hosted Richard, what, five years ago? Longer than that, at Brookings when he wrote uh, a book entitled Happiness, the Lessons from a New Science, which I think really put the happiness economics and the, and the questions that it's raised in, into the policy debate. But around that same time, I was working on a manuscript on happiness, another book. And my colleague and friend, but also the director of economic studies at Brookings at the time, said to me, Carol, you, this is a great manuscript. It's really good. But you have to take happiness out of the title, because nobody's going to take you seriously. Now, I think if you looked at the number of uh, articles in top economics journals with happiness in the title today, you'd find that they're over a thousand a year. So the field has come a long way, um, but indeed it wasn't fashionable to work on it before. So today I want to talk a bit about, um, wait a minute, here we go, um, sort of a, I want to talk about the lessons I've learned studying happiness around the world, um, and the title of my new book is indeed Happiness Around the World, The Paradox of Happy Peasants and Miserable Millionaires. Um, it's just come out this week with Oxford Press. In fact, I've only seen one copy, so I'm looking forward to seeing some after the lecture. But um, I'm having to learn to use this mouse, which will take me a second, but I, it should get better. Oh, I wonder what I did. And then Tim, do next. Well, yeah, just do that. Okay, yeah. perfect. Um, so, as Richard mentioned, a big focus of, of the book is uh, is how some individuals who are destitute report to be very happy, and others who are very wealthy report to be miserable. Um, you know, how can this be, or why is this? It's a, I think it's a central question in economics: the relationship between income and happiness, and it's become the question of a lot of sometimes contentious debate. In, in economics today. 
Um, because the, 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 the idea that income might not buy you happiness is very controversial, at least in standard economic models. Um, so one, one of the things I focus on is the role of norms and adaptation in explaining this conundrum. Um, adaptation is a subject of a lot of work in economics, but ultimately the definition is psychological. So adaptations are they're both good and bad kinds of adaptation. They're defense mechanisms, and there are some like paranoia that we'd rather not have. Um, and they're healthy adaptations, things like humor, anticipation, and sublimation. Um, and at, at the extreme end, um, in terms of thinking of adaptations, psychologists have something called the set point theory, which basically assumes that individuals can adapt to anything, whether it's a serious illness, divorce, all kinds of things, um, and return to their natural set point of cheerful, cheerfulness, at least after some period of time. Um, so thinking about this, uh, I've been thinking a lot about adaptation as I've been studying happiness in places that are where people live under conditions of extreme adversity and also in places where people have a great deal of wealth. And my studies certainly suggest that people are tremendously adaptable. Um, the most recent place I studied happiness was in Afghanistan, of all places, and that's obviously a place where there is a great deal of adversity. And um, we find that people in Afghanistan are as happy as they are in Latin America, and they're 20% more likely to smile in a day than are Cubans. Um, seems rather remarkable if you think about the kinds of conditions that people in Afghanistan live in. Um, Another conundrum related to that, Kenyans are as satisfied with their health care as Americans are. If you think about objective health indicators between the two places, they really they have nothing to do with each other. Um, so thinking about this adaptation, this remarkable human capacity to adapt to adversity and remain happy or satisfied, how can this not be a good thing? Well, as I've been looking at this across countries worldwide and also across different substantive areas, across economics, health, crime and corruption, democracy, I started to think that maybe this wonderful capacity to adapt and preserve one's psychological health um, might not be a good thing at the collective level. Maybe it allows societies to tolerate very bad things. So let me give you some examples going through these different areas, and um, then it would be nice to open it up to discussion and, and see if this, if this theory, so to speak, <laughs> accords with, um, with the audience. But before I do that, I thought I would um, just talk a little bit about happiness economics for those of you that aren't familiar with it, and then a little bit about the consistent patterns that we find in the determinants of, of happiness across countries across the world, and then, then, then talk about um, what we know about adaptation. So basically, um, why happiness economics um, aren't traditional economic tools enough? Well, I think it's, um, happiness economics is a good, it, I, I don't think anybody is suggesting that we should replace all standard economic models with a study of happiness. But I do think it's a method which provides us with a wonderful amount of complementary information that tells us a lot about human well-being and in areas that standard tools don't do a very good job. Um, we combine the tools and methods typically used by economists with those used by psychologists and we're able to capture broader elements of welfare than income data alone do. And there, uh, there are a couple of kinds of questions that I think this method is particularly well suited to answering. 
And they're, they're questions that the standard revealed preferences approach don't answer very well. So standard economics assumes that you can't believe what people say because there's no consequence to what they say. You can only believe what people do in terms of what they purchase or consume. But there are many areas where, when, where people either don't consume because they can't, they don't have the agency to, or they don't make a choice because they don't have the capacity to, or where they consume too much because of all kinds of you know, perverse reasons. And so to assume that, that those behaviors are optimal preferences, um, you would then come up with very different conclusions about whether those choices were good or bad for people's welfare. So there are two areas where I do a lot of work, and I think happiness economics has a lot of potential to shed a lot of light. And one is the, the welfare effects of macro and institutional arrangements individuals are powerless to change. So if you think about um, inequality, macroeconomic vol volatility, bad governance. It's very difficult for individuals to change things. I always think about the example of a poor peasant in Bolivia who's made very unhappy by inequality, for example. Well, we have no way of knowing that because the poor peasant has no way of exercising a choice other than emigrating or protesting, and both of those are rather extreme choices and often even dangerous ones. But with happiness economics, we can actually see if inequality makes that peasant less or more happy. Um, another area that I've been doing a lot of work in is, is a whole area of behaviors that are driven by norms, addiction, and self-control. Alcohol and drug abuse, smoking, obesity, these are all areas where consumption choices that we observe are not necessarily optimal choices. They may be choices that are made for all kinds of other reasons, but they aren't necessarily welfare-enhancing choices. And another area, which relates very much to the happy peasant problem, is um, when you think about behaviors or choices made by the poor um, that don't seem optimal at all. They seem rather perverse. Why don't, why don't the children of pe uh, peasants in lower caste India go to school? Why don't their parents send them to school? Well, maybe they're not sending them to school because they don't have the expectation that their children should go to school. Maybe the norm is that children of lower caste people don't go to school, and so they don't send their children to school. Now, is that an optimal choice, a revealed preference, or is it just conforming to a norm that it's very difficult to break out of. So um, happiness economics can help us get at these questions, and I'll try and give you some examples of this. Now, even though um, there was a lot of skepticism originally about using these surveys, surveys of pe what people say makes them happy, um, there are a number of reasons that we are getting increasingly confident in doing so. Um, one is that there are consistent patterns, remarkably consistent patterns in the determinants of well-being across large samples of people across countries, across the world, and over time. So the, some of the basic things that make people happy, and I'll show you some of these, um, income, health, marital status, employment status, some of these very basic things are remarkably consistent across countries, across the world. And so that gives us some sense that these surveys are picking up consistent patterns. And then when we know what those consistent patterns are, we can look at how other things that vary much more affect people's well-being, the environment, inequality, the nature of the institutional re regime they live in, all kinds of other things that vary much more. And the second reason we have more and more confidence is that as econometrics has developed more and complex tools, we're able to account for a lot of the error and bias that's in survey data that's particularly attached to individual, individual specific traits in a way that we, we weren't able to before. And um, just a last word on uh, survey data before I st um, 
stop talking about method, um, certainly survey data is full of error. But if you've ever worked with income data from the developing economies or the transition economies, or even, I might say, the developed economies, and you don't believe that there's error in that data, I think you're, you know, it's obviously delusional. So all data has a lot of error, and survey data has error. But if you recognize what the error is and try and correct for it, I think it's perfectly legitimate to use it. Um, so why be a little more cautious? Well, first of all, there are clearly biases in the way people answer surveys. Um, one bias comes just from question ordering. If you think about, you know, if you ask an open-ended question on a, how happy are you with your life or how satisfied are you with your life, after 10 questions about somebody's marital status or about their job satisfaction, um, you know, you're, you're going to bias the question somehow. Or even worse, there's a, there's a kind of random event kind of bias. If you happen to ask somebody um, how happy they are on the day that they just failed their chemistry exam, they probably aren't very happy. But what we find with these very large samples is that that, that idiosyncratic error gets basically gets um, taken away by the large samples. And the question ordering is a very simple thing to get around. When you're using open-ended happiness or life satisfaction questions, they should be at the beginning of the survey before you start asking people about all these other things. I think a more serious challenge that's not a methodological one, and it's really the subject of what I'm going to talk about today, is this whole issue of adaptation. And there's adaptation at the individual level, and there's also adaptation at the country level. So as I mentioned, some psychologists believe that people always adapt back to their set point, no matter what happens to them, even a spinal cord injury, a divorce. There's some evidence that shows that there are some events that people do not ever adapt back from. Um, Long-term unemployment is one. Um, certain kinds of health conditions is another. There may be others. I think there's, there's still a lot of debate here. But, um, and if you take this set point theory to its extreme, then you say, well, if a poor peasant who's adapted to his or her condition and reports to be happy, because they've just returned to their natural cheerfulness, or they just are naturally cheerful, how is this information relevant to policy? Now, this is something I've called in the literature the happy peasant versus the frustrated achiever problem, and, I, and it'll be coming out in several iterations as I go through the rest of the talk. Um, but I would argue that understanding why somebody has been able to adapt to adversity is very relevant information. And secondly, we never know how long it will take people to adapt. So standard economics worries a lot about equilibrium. We're always focusing on equilibrium. But if equilibrium is 10 years of misery away, shouldn't policy be concerned with that? Um, so adaptation is a challenge, but I don't think we can just dismiss um, the relevance of these surveys because people are able to adapt. Um, Secondly, at the country level, people, uh, people adapt a lot. And there is something called the Easterland Paradox, which is um, that as countries have grow wealthier over time um, and per, per capita incomes increased, have increased dramatically, certainly in the developed or in the advanced economies, average levels of happiness have not increased at all. In fact, in Japan, in the three decades that Japanese income per average per capita GDP quintupled, happiness levels went down. In the US, happiness levels have been flat despite dramatic economic growth right up to the crisis. Um, and also across, that, and that's kind of an overtime story of the Easterland paradox. Another one is just if you look across countries, it's not clear that the wealthiest countries are the happiest ones. Um, 
There's some new debate and evidence based on the Gallup World Poll and some different kinds of happiness questions that has been introduced by Angus Deaton and some others that finds a closer correlation between average levels of GDP and happiness. Um, I'd be happy to talk about that in the questions. There are all kinds of reasons why this has created debate in economics, and there's a tremendous amount of debate about whether or not the Easterlin paradox exists or not. Well, so if you look at this slide, and this is my slide based on my data, um, and the blue dots are from the World Values Survey, the red dots are from the Latino Barometro Survey, a, a region-wide survey in Latin America I've been involved setting up. Um, it would, and you have, this is GDP per capita on the horizontal axis and uh, percent above neutral on life satisfaction question on the vertical axis. I would argue, if you look at this slide, you could conclude there was an Easterland paradox and you could conclude there wasn't an Easterland paradox. And the reason for that is, if you look, the rich countries are, on average, happier than the, the much poorer ones. It's not a big surprise. But if you look among the groups of countries, if you look among the rich countries, um, there's certainly not a clear income and happiness relationship. Um, the USA is the wealthiest country by far on this chart, but it's certainly not the happiest. Um, and then if you look down at the, at the Latin American countries, the red dots, there is absolutely no relationship at all between income and happiness. Um, and the only dot that makes me unhappy is uh, the country I'm from, Peru, is way at the bottom. Um, maybe that's a mistake, but I, I don't know. I, I think what you find, though, with these country-level averages is that ultimately they don't tell us that much because one thing that is driving these mixed results is that they're just cultural differences in the way people answer surveys. So if you, if you ask somebody in Venezuela or Panama, which are way up at the top of the happiness charts for the, for the Latin American countries, they're just, that's the way they talk. They're naturally cheerful, and I think that biases these average scores up. And with average findings, when we're just comparing countries, we're not controlling for lots of other things that we, we do control for when we look at individual responses. And I think that's where the, there's the most um, information in these surveys. So we know from the within countries studies, from the individual studies, that within countries, wealthier, healthier, and more educated people are happier than poorer, less healthy, and less educated ones. And they have more time to enjoy their lives. Um, but, that, but after that, there's a lot of debate. We don't know how much happier wealthy people are than poorer ones. We don't, the, the relationship between income and happiness is not linear. Um, we know that healthier people are happier than unhealthy ones, but we also find that they're very, you know, relatively unhealthy people in poor places that are as happy as much healthier people in rich places. And here is where I think adaptation plays a role, also maybe norms, but um, let's, let, let me talk a little bit about um, adaptation or what, I, what I've found about adaptation is I've looked across countries and as, uh, I've looked across substantive areas. Okay, first of all, just before getting into the adaptation story, let me show you a couple of the patterns, the consistent happiness patterns that hold everywhere before we start talking about differences across countries. So f this is, um, this is a, a relationship between happiness and age. This is controlling for um, health and also for being married or having a partner, both things that matter a lot to happiness. Uh, this is for Latin America. It's happiness on the, on the vertical axis and years of age on the horizontal axis. 
And you'll see here that the low point of happiness is in Latin America is about age 47. Um, I hate to tell you that's exactly where I am, and I'm from Latin America, so I, maybe I'm at the bottom of the U. But if this is a relationship that holds across the world, everywhere I've studied happiness, Afghanistan, Central Asia, Russia, the US, Europe, Latin America, Africa, um, there may be a modest difference. So in Russia, it's a little bit later. In the US and Europe, it's a little bit earlier, slightly earlier in the 40s. But it's a fairly consistent relationship. So for those of you that thought your 20s and 30s were it, you have a long way to go. For those of us on the upward side of the curve, um, it's probably good news. And there could be all kinds of reasons that explain this. Um, there could be a um, sort of you learn what you're going to be when you grow up and you deal with it by the time you're in, you're in your mid-40s. It could be the different sort of family stress levels that come in the middle age years and then alleviate as people get older. It could be a just happy to be alive effect. There may also be a selection effect. We know that happier people live longer for the most part, so the unhappy ones die off. And lastly, <laughs> there may even be a senility effect because our oldest respondent in Latin America is 99 years old. So who knows, but this is a very, very basic relationship. Now, more seriously, um, this is just, uh, never mind the equations or regression equations with happiness as the dependent variable, but I'll talk you through them. So it just helps me remember what I need to say. Um, and it's comparing the determinants of happiness in Russia, Latin America, and the United States. Three pretty different places, and we find remarkable consistency. As I mentioned, this age relationship holds across all three contexts. Um, gender varies slightly. Women are happier than men in the US and Europe. Um, there's no gender difference in happiness in Latin America. And in Russia, men are happier than women, and most of the things we know and read about the status of men and women in Russia suggests that um, there are certain reasons women might be unhappy, but anyway, that comes out. Marriage typically is positive and significant for happiness. So married people are happier than non-married people. Um, we don't know if that's because happier people select each other and marry each other, or that marriage causes happiness. It could be both things. Um, in these particular years, uh, married people are not happier um, than the average in Russia. In Latin America, they usually are. This particular year of data it comes out just short of significant. Um, but the marriage happiness relationship is pretty consistent across, again, across many kinds of countries and across many different regions. Um, income matters to happiness. Um, it, how much it matters differs a little bit, but it, it basically it matters. It matters more when you have less of it, which makes sense. If you can't meet your basic needs, then an additional increment of income is going to make more, more of a difference to your happiness. Um, education is usually positively correlated with happiness, but when we have it in the same equation with income, we get more mixed results because they're so closely correlated um, that the education um, findings often just become insignificant. Minorities is a, is a story where there's some differences here. Minorities are happier than average than the average in Russia, and this is in the after the breakup of the Soviet Union, a time in which minorities achieved kind of a new status and a new freedom, and that may explain that. Um, in Latin America and the US, minorities are less happy than the average. Um, I don't want to spend too much more time on this. A couple of other very important relationships, though. Unemployment is everywhere we've studied happiness. Unemployment is, is bad for happiness. And even in contexts where people have full income replacement, as in the Scandinavian countries, unemployed people are still less happy than employed people. 
Um, health, extremely important to happiness, the last, uh, the last column or row on the slide. And then just one last difference that's notable. Self-employed people are happier than the average in Russia and the US. And if you think about if, if you're self-employed in the US anyway, you're usually self-employed by choice. You're working at home in your jeans on your computer. You don't have a boss. Things are good. But self-employed people are less happy than the average in Latin America. So why is that? In Latin America, if you're self-employed, you're likely working in the informal sector, and you would love to have you know, a, a more stable job. So that's, an, that's one example of where we can look at the consistent patterns across countries, and when there are differences, you know, we, we learn something by trying to explain them. OK, last slide on the sort of basic, um, or the, some of the basic things we know about happiness. This is, this is from um, some data we had for Russia, where we were able to look at happiness and income for the same respondents at two periods in time. And our question was, we know that, that income causes some happiness. We, there's debate over how much happiness it causes. But um, does happiness cause income? Does, does happiness cause other things? Now, without going through the technicalities of all this, um, we, we did a two-stage approach where in the first stage, we looked at, the, uh, at what determined happiness for this sample of respondents in the first period of time and isolated what we called unexplained or residual happiness for each respondent, which was the happiness level that wasn't explained by their age, their income, their gender, and all the things we normally control for. And we used that in a second stage regression as an independent variable with income as a dependent variable. So basically saying, you know, does this unexplained happiness have, have an effect on the next period income? And we found indeed that it was positive and significant. And we also found that it was positive and significant on future health. So at least there's some suggestion that happiness is correlated with making more money or earning more, performing better in the labor market, and with being healthier. There's some other studies by psychologists that corroborate this. Um, and if you, what, another thing we found here was that the effect was more important for people on the lower end of the income scale. So think about this. If you have a lot of income or assets to leverage your future earnings on, your happiness level probably matters less. I mean, you can probably be a real jerk and still do very well in the stock market, right? But if you're, if you're in the low end of the income earning scale and say you're in the service sector, having a cheerful personality, being slightly happy, probably helps you do better in the labor market. So now turning finally to the many different studies we did um, that suggest, that are very suggestive of adaptation playing an important role. Um, first, let me talk about the economics arena. So one of the things we found that surprised us looking at, at the relationship between economic growth and happiness across the world was that people in faster growing countries were less happy on average than people in less fast growing countries. And we've called this the paradox of unhappy growth. This is um, some work I did with Eduardo Lora, who's the chief economist at the Inter-American Development Bank, but more importantly, an alumni of the LSE. Um, but anyway, what we find here is that controlling for average levels of GDP per capita, so for controlling of levels of income in the countries, um, the economic growth rate is negatively correlated with life satisfaction, with satisfaction with your standard of living, and with health satisfaction. And this is, this is from uh, 100 and some countries in the Gallup World Poll, a cross-section of countries in um, 2007. Now, 
why would this be? Well, there are lots of, there are lots of issues. Um, one is that um, growth comes with lots of good things, but also lots of bad things. It can be very unsettling. It comes often with changing rewards to different skill sets, so it can be great for some cohorts and not so good for others. Often it comes with increased inequality. Certainly in the emerging market economies, which I think are driving these findings, growth can be associated with all sorts of, um, you know, job destabilization and other things, even though the long-run outcome is higher levels of, uh, of GDP per capita, the process can be an unsettling one. Um, so I think a lot of this is driven by uncertainty, inequality, uh, other sort of unset, um, um, destabilizing factors in the growth process. But another factor is just that as countries grow, as economies grow richer, so do people's aspirations. And aspirations may grow even faster than the economy does. So we find that as people have more, they seem to want, they look around at their neighbors and they, they want more. And so um, there's something called the hedonic treadmill in the literature which suggests that you know, as people have more, they want more and they're constantly pursuing more income and yet it's not making them happier. The paradox of unhappy growth is certainly suggestive of that. Um, at the micro level, there's sort of a micro-level analog to the paradox of unhappy growth, which is something I've called the happy peasant and frustrated achiever problem. And this is based on my studies of um, respondents in the emerging market economies, in particular Peru, Russia, and more recently some work of others in China, where we find that people with the most income mobility, so people that have the most income gains in, say, a 10-year period or a five-year period, whatever we are able to observe the same people over a period of time for, most of them are much more frustrated than people that haven't made gains at all, or that people that have made very modest gains. Um, so here's where the term the happy peasants versus frustrated achiever problems. When we first looked at these data and found that you know, the people that had made the most gains reported the most frustration with their economic situation, it seemed a conundrum. But if you, th one, if you get deeper into the happiness literature. There are all kinds of reasons why that might be. And then just thinking about individuals who are working very hard to make income gains in fast-growing emerging market economies, those gains are accompanied by a lot of insecurity, increases in equality, and very visible gains by a, f by a, by a very few very large winners. Think about Russia from the year 1995 to 2000 when we did this study. People may have gotten better off in many contexts, but there were also lots of scandals, lots of corruptions, and lots of big winners. So even if you were doing all right and your income increased in percentage terms by a lot, if you were looking around you, you could be very frustrated. Um, and in most of these contexts, if you lose your money, there's no safety net to fall back on. So there are reasons why our frustrated achievers are um, unhappy, and the other, and there are also reasons why our happy peasants are happy. And one reason that happy peasants may be happy is just that they have um, adapted to, their, um, a, to a situation of adversity. Another example comes from looking at the happiness of migrants. This is work that others have done that I've, um, that I've used but didn't do myself. But anyway, it shows and suggests that migrants adapt very rapidly to their new reference norms and compare themselves to others in the new city very quickly. So if you interview them in the first six months that they arrived in the new city, they, they report higher financial satisfaction 
than they do six months later. Even though they've made income gains in the, in, in the period, so their income's gone up, but six months later they're less satisfied with their financial situation. Well, why is that? Because initially they were still comparing themselves to their reference group income at home in their poor rural place of origin. Later, they start to compare themselves to the reference norm in the city and much higher levels of income. So very quickly they adapt to a new reference norm. In this case, expectations are adapting upwards, not downwards. Um, adaptation goes both ways. Um, now, last area in economics is in the area of economic crisis. Um, we talked about the paradox of unhappy growth, you know, this paradox that people are unhappy when things are going well. Well, lo and behold, when we look at crisis, we get a reverse effect, eventually, anyway. So this is, um, I've also done research in Russia and Argentina that's similar, but this is the best data I have looking at well-being during crisis. It's for the U.S. during the, use, the recent economic crisis. This is um, from the Gallup daily data set. So we have 1,000 respondents a day from January 08 until the present. There are 1,000 people, a nationally representative sample interviewed every day. Now, they're not the same people, but they, they, they're roughly the same in terms of the, the cohorts that they represent. And what do we find? Okay, this on the, on the vertical axis is the best possible life question, which is a proxy for a happiness question in the Gallup poll. And on the right axis, we have dates. Um, the red line is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And the blue line is mean happiness, so average happiness levels for the sample over this period of time. And what do we find? We find that um, happiness levels fall dramatically with the, and uh, online with the Dow. So crisis is bad for well-being initially, right? It's, um, you know, as, as, as the crisis is setting in, people's happiness is going down, 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 along with the Dow. Then about here, is, which is March of 2009, when the stock market stopped bottoming out um, and at least stabilized, there was sort of a sense that the, that the free fall had stopped, we see average happiness levels go way up. And what's quite remarkable is that they're higher now, post-crisis, than they were in January 08, before people had all these income losses. Um, and just to make sure this isn't spurious, we also looked at responses to other questions. So the same people that are happier still report their, their satisfaction with their standard of living to be much lower. So satisfaction with standard of living stays flat, like the Dow, but happiness levels go up. Um, we also looked at happiness, the determinants of happiness, just at different points of time during the sample on different dates to make sure it wasn't some weird thing that had changed in the sample driving this. Um, and we looked at mean happiness levels for the one-year observation that we had in years back to just to make sure this wasn't some kooky result. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty robust. So it suggests that, one, that people adapt to lower standards of living, um, but it also suggests that what was worse for happiness about the crisis wasn't so much having a lower standard of living, but it was the uncertainty, not knowing when it would stop. So people can adapt better to unpleasant certainty than they can to uncertainty. And I'll show you from some examples from the health arena that suge are suggestive of the same thing. It's, sort of it's easier to adapt to something that you know than an uncertain condition that's constantly changing. Um, so let's switch from economics to crime and corruption, which is another area I've looked at. And um, as I mentioned, I'm from Peru. Um, and 
I like to, to start this section or think about this section with an anecdote. About, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, my cars were stolen, I mean my cars, my tires were stolen off my car in front of my house in northwest Washington. I came out and my Honda was on blocks, four blocks. I was outraged. This was just, you know, unacceptable, called the police, it ruined my day, ruined the next day, it was a big mess. If this had happened in Lima, if, and I'd walked out and seen my car on blocks, I would have been like, you idiot, why did you leave the car outside overnight? So just, you know, same person, different norms. I expect there to be a certain level to, of crime when I'm in Lima. I adapt to it. I don't expect that level of crime in Washington, and if there is, it makes me very unhappy. So what we find looking across a number of areas is that precisely that, how much what people's norm is, what, what they are accustomed to, then affects the well-being effects of different things. So we know that trust matters to well-being, but it seems to matter less to well-being or happiness if there's just less trust in general, as in Afghanistan. Okay, so as I mentioned, Afghans are relatively happy according to world averages, but nobody there trusts anybody. They have unusually level, low levels of trust. Um, and the few people that trust others are happier than the average, but they're also much less educated. There may be sort of a Pollyanna effect. But basically, trust doesn't have the same strong relationship with well-being in Afghanistan as it does in some other places, because there's just less trust in general. Um, John Helliwell has done some nice work showing how democracy and freedom matter positively to well-being, but they seem to matter more where they're more of these things. So democracy and freedom are more closely correlated with the happiness of respondents in countries that have more democracy and freedom than those in places where people don't expect to have these things. And then finally, crime and corruption matter to well-being negatively, but they matter much less when they're more common. So I mentioned my Peru anecdote, but let me show you some more um, robust results than just my only one observation. So we've looked at this in Latin America, Africa, and Afghanistan, the effect of crime and corruption on happiness. Um, and without taking too much time to go through the details of this, what we did here is, again, happiness is the dependent variable. We've controlled for all kinds of other things. This is from 17 countries in Latin America, um, repeated observations over uh, 18,000 respondents a year. Um, and we looked at, first of all, whether or not being a crime victim made you less happy, and we find indeed being a victim of crime has a negative effect on well-being. Um, but then we, for each respondent, we created a, a residual crime variable, which was what we called the unexplained probability of being a crime victim. And it was the probability of being a crime victim in the past year that wasn't explained by your age, gender, income status, urban or rural location, and all the other things we were testing for. And we basically used or assumed this, this variable is to some extent a proxy for just how much random crime there is around you. If there's a lot of random crime around you, you're more likely to be a crime victim. And we indeed find that, the, that if you have more random crime around you, that's positively correlated with well-being in this, in this specification, suggesting that it mitigates the effect. So if you, if, if, even though the effect of being a crime victim is negative, if there's more crime around you, being made a crime victim is less negative for your happiness. Um, we also looked at 
lag, uh, um, sort of lag victimization. So were you a crime victim two years ago or three years ago? And we find that there was still a negative effect if it was a year ago, but if you were a crime victim two years ago, you, you already forgot about it, basically. So there's, again, suggestive of, of an adaptation story. Uh, we did the exact same thing with corruption, and without spending more time going through the slide, we get a, a, essentially identical results. So being a victim of corruption makes you less happy in Latin America, but if there's more corruption around you, the effect isn't as bad. Uh, very similar findings for crime victimization in Africa. Um, in this case, there the two um, we split our sample into people who reported um, to have not much security. Personal security was low on the left, the blue sort of set of the slide, and for people that had high expectations for their personal security on the right side. And we find that in both cases, being made a crime victim makes you unhappy. But if you have low expectations for your personal and neighborhood security, being made a crime victim doesn't make you as unhappy as if you have high expectations of security. Again, suggesting that people adapt to higher crime norms. There's some other nice work by Nick Pautave um, on South Africa that, that supports these findings. Oh, oops. And then finally, Afghanistan. This is a, these are pretty neat results. Well, first of all, for just the whole sample, if you're a victim of crime or corruption in Afghanistan, it doesn't make you unhappy at all. These things are so common that you know, you're just used to it. The only place where it mattered was in Taliban-influenced districts. Now, we interviewed not in war zones and in really intensely contested districts, but we did interview in some districts where there was more Taliban influence than in the others where crime and corruption levels are certainly lower, so just the rates of victimization are lower. But we found that if you were a victim of corruption in those districts, then it did make you very unhappy, and it probably was a stigma effect. You know, corruption is much less the norm, and therefore, if you are a victim of corruption, the well-being effects are worse. Again, supportive of the, the, the idea that people adapt to bad things when there are more of them. Okay, last, and I'll try and do this quickly. How much time do I have, Richard? Five, five more minutes or something? Five minutes, yeah. Okay. All right, let me talk a little bit about health um, without taking too much time. There is something called the Millennium Preston Curve, which is, um, this is GDP per capita on the horizontal axis and um, life expectancy on the vertical axis. And um, what we find is that the curve is very sharp at low levels of income and then flattens out at higher levels of income. And if you think about the Easterland Paradox Curve, there's some similarities here. Again, you know, more, more income when you have very little of it matters more to your happiness than when you have lots of it. But in the case of health, there are lots of reasons for this. When countries are very poor the, and life expectancy is very low, the kinds of health interventions that improve life expectancy, one, are fairly straightforward and simple, and they have a big bang for their buck, and you can boost up um, life expectancy pretty quickly. As countries get wealthier and life expectancy is already high and therefore higher to raise, um, the kinds of illnesses and diseases that it would take to, to increase life expectancy are harder to find cures for, and they take as much technology and innovation as they do income. So there are reasons for explaining this curve. But the question I have is, um, is there a similar curve or relationship 
between health and health satisfaction. Okay, so basically saying that as health improves at the lower end of, uh, end of the income ladder, does health satisfaction go up? And then does it flatten out? As people have very good health, uh, does it take so much more health to make them more satisfied with their health? So I don't have the data yet to draw a similar curve. I wish I did. I hope to by the next book. But I, we do know some things, and they're rather remarkable. Um, first of all, it's clear that tolerance for ill health varies a great deal across countries, cohorts, and cultures. Health satisfaction is as high in Kenya as it is in the US, as I mentioned. And it's higher in Guatemala than it is in Chile. And the objective health indicators in Chile are substantially better than they are in Guatemala, you know, up by an order of magnitude different. Um, we know that national average health satisfaction only correlates weakly with GDP per capita, and that it's negatively correlated with a growth rate, something I um, showed you earlier. Um, national average health satisfaction is positively correlated with life expectancy, which you would expect and hope, but it's also positively correlated with the infant mortality rate, which makes no sense at all. Um, so, um, I, unless of course you think it's driven by the fact that the infants that didn't make it aren't answering the surveys, but mainly you would think that you know high levels of infant mortality would be correlated negatively with, with health satisfaction. So basically when we think about what determines health satisfaction across countries, it seems that it's driven much more by um, variables that capture cultural differences much more than the expected indicators do, than objective health conditions. Within countries, we find that the rich are clearly more satisfied with their health than the poor, but the gaps in their satisfaction levels are much smaller than the gaps in the objective indicators. So basically, the poor are more satisfied with their health than their indicators predict they should be, and the rich are much less satisfied with their health than the indicators predict they should be. Um, I'll give you some more evidence that, uh, well, well, first of all, what I think drives these findings is norms of health, just very different norms of health. If you expect poor health, you're going to be satisfied with much less health. Um, let me show you uh, two more slides, and then I can conclude. Um, this is a study of the well-being effects of obesity in the United States, which is a country which, as you know, has um, not the highest, or it has the highest or the second highest obesity rate in the world. This is kind of constantly changing. And basically, we find that obese people are on average less happy than non-obese people. Not a big surprise. But what we find is that the unhappiness effects are mitigated by how many obese people are around you, to the extent to which obesity is the norm. So first of all, this slide. We were looking at reported depression, not at um, happiness. So you have to think about the scale. Think about the scales being reversed. So in this case, um, in this case, a positive score means you're more likely to be depressed. A negative score means you're less likely to be depressed. So what we find, the base case incidence of obesity is 0.57. So a white obese person. We're comparing everybody to a white obese person with income in the middle income quintile, living in a non-urban area in the east of the United States who've not graduated high school are 0.57 standard deviations higher on the depression scale than their non-obese counterparts. The numbers don't really matter, just to give you an idea. But when we compare these other cohorts to that base case, we get quite interesting findings. 
If you're Hispanic and black and obese, the effect of being obese on well-being is lower. It bothers you less because obesity is actually higher among Hispanics and blacks. Um, if you're poor and obese, the effects are worse than controlling for everything else. If you're wealthy and obese, um, if you live anywhere but the East Coast, the North, Central, South, and West of the U.S., it's much better to be obese than if you're in the East. Well, in the East, there's less obesity. So if you're obese, you stand out more, you're less happy. Um, if you live in a city where there's less obesity, you're much more unhappy if you're obese than if you live in, in the rural areas where there's more obesity. Um, we also did this looking across professional cohorts, and we got even stronger findings so that if you depart for the weight norm for your professional cohort, you're very unhappy. So what we find is that in low-skilled cohorts, where there's a lot of obesity, the impact of obesity is very low. In high-skilled cohorts, the impact of obesity on well-being is very high. Bottom line, it's okay to be obese and work at Walmart. It's not okay to be obese and work at Wall Street, and the happiness levels reflect this. But that's actually kind of a sad story, because it means that a certain, certain cohorts are just conforming to worse health norms and worse, worse health in general, because poor health is the norm. Okay, last thing on health, um, and this has to do with what people can and can't adapt to. Um, this is some work we did looking at the life satisfaction effects of different health conditions in an index called the EuroQuality Five Dimension Index. It's been used a lot in Europe and the United States. In this instance, we had the largest sample of this ever done. It was for our whole Latin America sample um, in the Gallup World Poll and several hundred thousand or no, it was about 20,000 respondents across 18 countries. And what we were able to do is compare people's reported health indicators on these different conditions with their life satisfaction and then look at the relative weights of having different conditions. And the conditions were mobility problems, um, problems with self-care, problems with the usual acts, which are going to work, um, enjoying leisure time, uh, driving a car, there was a list of them, problems with pain, and then problems with anxiety. And what do we find? That the conditions that, that really bother people the most, in fact, where we, really, where we got significant effects on life and health satisfaction, in this case it's life satisfaction, were one was moderate problems with the usual acts, just problems with doing what you normally expect to do, but you can't do it. Um, mobility problems, you'll notice, didn't even appear on here. Because the average person with mobility problems expects to have mobility problems. They tend to increase with age, and people just deal with them. They may be unpleasant, but they expect to have them, and they adapt to them. What can't people adapt to? Where were the health effects in terms of, as measured in life satisfaction, the worst? Pain, anxiety, and ex extreme anxiety. And if you think about these conditions, they're conditions that are uncertain, unpredictable, and very difficult for people to adapt to. So the what, what even the health results suggest is, again, that people adapt better to unpleasant certainty than to uncertainty. Now, I'd like to take this all back to what, it, what, is this, what does this tell us about um, prosperity and adversity across the world? Well, first of all, there's you know, strong evidence that people can adapt to anything um, or to a lot of things, um, and that at the individual level, this is likely a good thing, at least from a psychological welfare perspective. But at the collective level, I think this may result in societies getting stuck in bad equilibrium, such as bad health norms or, or high levels of crime and corruption. 
And it's very difficult for any one individual to challenge or tip these kinds of norms. Think about a very corrupt society. Um, it's very hard to behave honestly when everybody else is corrupt. I mean, if you're the only person that doesn't bribe the policeman when you mistakenly run a red light, you're going to be the only one that ends up in jail. And, you know, that's just not too smart. So it's very hard if you live in a high crime or corruption norm place to tip that norm. And the same probably goes with health. If, you know, there isn't much good health care around you, nobody expects good health, how do you, how do you change that if, if everybody's sort of adapted to and tolerates this bad norm? So how is all this relevant to policy? Um, it can't tell us how to tip these norms. I think that's a big question. But I think understanding their existence is a very first step. Understanding that different cohorts in the US, for example, tolerate obesity differently certainly suggests for policy that they're going to respond to messages about health care differently. Um, I think it can help us understand how Chile and Afghanistan can coexist in such dif different democracy, crime, income, health equilibrium in a world where there's global information and both of them know how the other ones live. It can't tell us how to make Afghanistan's norms like Chile's, but it's certainly highlighting a challenge, um, both for our understanding of what makes people happy or unhappy, um, for the relationship between income and happiness, um, and just for development policy more generally. Um, I also, though, think that this question of different people tolerating things differently and then answering happiness surveys differently raises a note of caution about applying happiness surveys to policy, at least directly, um, because I think that this difference in norms and, and expect tolerance for adversity means that some people can report to be happy in conditions that are intolerable by most people's standards. Um, and that's what I've called the happy peasant versus a mis miserable millionaire problem. Um, I certainly don't think this dismisses happiness surveys as an incredibly useful um, research instrument and that the results of many of these surveys can be applied to policy, but we need to do so cautiously. Just the last couple words. Um, in addition to adaptation, there are some unresolved questions um, that pose challenges to the direct application of, of the results of happiness surveys to policy. Um, again, I don't, they certainly don't dismiss them, but I think this is where we need to be careful. First of all, happiness surveys are a wonderful research tool because we don't define happiness for the respondent. So every respondent defines happiness for his or herself. And I think that's why we get consistent patterns in the answers to happiness surveys in countries as diverse as China, Chile, Afghanistan, and the United States. But if we're thinking about happiness as a policy objective, do we require a definition? I don't know. I know Richard has thought about this a bit, and he may have some things to say. Um, but it's certain, you know, you can think about why this raises normative questions. Is happiness as contentment alone the happy peasant, maybe, a policy objective we're comfortable with. When I think about it, I'm more comfortable with the definition of happiness, such as happiness as contentment, welfare, and dignity, all combined. Um, is that a relevant policy objective? Again, that's a, that's a question that needs to be had. It needs to be had within societies, and certainly in societies thinking about national well-being indicators. Um, Another problem is cardinality versus ordinality. So our surveys just are categories. People place themselves either on a one to 10 point scale, but with no real cardinal meaning to the scale, or they, they place themselves from unhappy to very happy. 
but do we care more about making a very unhappy or miserable person less happy, I mean more happy, or somebody who's already happy, very happy? You could answer that question lots of ways. Again, there are normative issues at play, but it's a discussion that needs to be had. We haven't resolved it yet, at least not in my view. Um, all of that said, I think this whole approach has opened the door for, for economists and other social scientists to explore a host of questions that defy traditional approaches. Um, and there are important questions for people around the world. The welfare effects of different environments, of different institutional arrangements, the role of norms, the role of different health conditions on people's well-being. Um, and it's, you know, it, I think it, it's, a, it's a wonderful area to work in because there's so many still as yet unaddressed questions. But like anything new, we're working to get the science right, uh, hope, hopefully before the increased publicity surrounding the approach gets the better of us. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. What a feast. So uh, now we have time for some discussion and questions. Uh, who would like to start? Don't hesitate. Don't be shy. Ah. Hi. Um, I think first one remark, like personally, when, uh, if someone asks me if I'm happy and from zero to ten, I personally, I think I wouldn't be able to say anything. Like I would say something wrong because I'm just not used to these uh, questions and uh, uh, the question uh, now is um, more for the uh, achiever problem the unhappy achiever uh, are there do you know of any experiments maybe that it has something to do with regret I mean if you have more choices you probably get a chance to regret your decisions more so then you tend to be unhappy I mean that that's a great question and it's um, there's there are, there are a number of explanations, I think, for the frustrated achiever problem, and I, I don't think we have them all yet. Um, your regret question is a good one, and it, it could be regret, or it could be that when people are just asked to assess their current situation, they're not thinking about their past situation. And if I could redo my frustrated achiever studies, which I did almost ten, nine years ago, and six years ago, and I knew what I know now, I would ask so many other questions. And one question I would ask would be, after having asked how satisfied they were with their lives and their economic situation, I would say, would you prefer to live the way you lived 10 years ago or the way you live now? And I think that would be a very nice way to test out whether they had some regrets about the way they used to live or whether, when framed that way, they think, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to go back there. And then you'd get a very different answer. Another issue with the frustrated achievers, and it's something that when we have panel data, the data over time for the same people we can tease out, is whether they aren't just, it isn't just a curmudgeon effect, that at least some percent of our frustrated achievers will be frustrated with anything, anywhere. They're just, you know, more frustrated people. And that frustration may lead particular people to migrate. Right? They're unhappy in the rural areas and move to the urban areas. It may lead particular people to work harder. Or it may just mean they're, not, they're always going to be frustrated. Um, we do know that on average, uh, psychological studies suggest anyway, um, and, and my Russia study um, suggests this as well, that on average, happier people perform better in the labor market, more successful. But the psychological studies suggest 
These are based on a nine-point happiness scale, so that people that answer seven or eight on the happiness scale typically are the good performers, but the nines don't do so well. They're like they're too happy. Um, we also know we also know that some of the world's greatest geniuses were absolutely miserable. You know, Van Gogh cut off his ear. Um, so uh, th this it, it's it's an incredibly difficult question about why the frustrated achievers, for example, are frustrated. I can point to the contextual variables that I think could explain, given holding all else equal, that they all had the same character traits. I think some of the things I mentioned, insecurity, inequality, loss aversion, um, rapidly changing rewards and uncertainty, could all contribute to frustration, and frustrations that people in much more stable rural areas wouldn't have. I think that's part of the explanation. But all of these other things, and many of which relate to psychology, are as yet unanswered. <laughs> You mentioned that uh, throughout uh, in your surveys, people who are unemployed are generally unhappy, and that you found throughout the world, regardless of, of country specifics. I was just curious, is it driven uh, primarily by a lack of income, or is it a general dissatisfaction of, of life, regardless of their income status? So for example, if you were to take people who are wealthy, you know, who have family, family wealth and therefore do not need to work, or indeed single or stay-at-home parents, uh, surely their sense of happiness uh, is not really driven by income, and therefore it's, it's a choice. Uh, do you, d did these people uh, factor into your samples? Yeah, no, well, first of all, we're controlling for income, so the, the finding of unhappiness and unemployment controls for people's income levels. And as I mentioned, people that have even full income replacement in terms of unemployment benefits are less happy on average. There's some other studies, including some done um, by my colleague Andrew Clark here in Britain, and some that I've done in Russia, a couple of others, that, that suggest very much that there's a stigma effect so that typically higher unemployment rates make the average person less happy. So an average employed person is unhappy when the unemployment rate goes up because they fear perhaps losing their job, they fear the negative externalities of more unemployed people. But unemployed people are happier in regions and states and Russian provinces where there are higher unemployment rates. And first you think that's crazy because their probability of being reemployed is less. But it's because there are more unemployed people around them and there's less stigma. So there's clearly there's clearly kind of an identity um, thing going on that you're you know you're you are you're happier if unemployment is more the norm, even though it's a bad norm. It sort of fits this whole adapting to adversity or adapting to kind of bad norms hypothesis that, you know, unemployed people are happier when there's more unemployment and may even have less incentive to do something about it. Hi. Um, I've, I've uh, researched in the area a little bit as well. I wrote my master's thesis about happiness and uh, productivity. Um, I mean, basically, you're, you're basing the argument, you, or your basic argument is that people adapt to new circumstances, right? So wouldn't that mean that if we increase, say, the income of a whole society, people would just be getting unhappier? Because you, you see what I mean? The, the level as such gets higher, and then people get sort of adapted to this, so the, so the happiness sort of decreases again. So would that, 
would that contradict even maybe Richard's theory of, of maximizing happiness? I, th I mean, I think this is what there's so much debate about because we know that the levels, so we know that growth makes, seems to make people less happy. On average, higher levels, countries with higher levels of income are happier than countries with lower levels of income. But then, you know, once they reach, particularly once they reach a certain level, it's not, you know, it's much more mixed up. And, you know, why is that? Well, one reason is if the levels are increasing, at the average levels, of, levels are increasing, they're probably not increasing the same for everybody. So some people are better off and some people are worse off. Um, we have studies that show that people, you know, people of the same income level, you take two people of the same income level, and one lives in a wealthier neighborhood and one lives in a poorer one, the one, the people who live in the wealthier neighborhood are less happy because everyone around them has more than they do. Um, the salary studies, you know, where people will prefer a lower raise if their colleagues, if their raise is closer to what their colleagues are getting than a higher raise when their colleagues are getting that much more than they. So there's a, whether levels, increasing levels increase happiness to some extent depends, I think, on the relative dis distribution of those levels. Um, and I mean, there's lots more I could think about and say on this, but it's probably about as much as I should given the time. Um, you say, that, I wanted to ask you about the definition of happiness or this sort of implicit definition that using these sorts of surveys and survey answers um, Im implies because I understand why the fact that you don't define it explicitly gives you more flexibility. But it, as long as you don't give an explicit definition and yet you're aggregating responses from different cult countries, cultures, and so on, isn't there at least a possibility that people are giving you orthogonal answers or are using orthogonal definitions of happiness or even at the limit diametrically opposed definitions and that therefore it doesn't make sense to aggregate their, their responses? Um, well, two points on that. Um, Jean-Paul, nice to see you. Um, the, I think if they were giving such orthogonal answers, if they really were conceiving of it so differently, then why would some of these patterns just hold so strongly across all these places? If people are thinking of happiness so differently, why is the age and happiness pattern so similar everywhere? You know, why is the basic income effect the same? Why, is un why does unemployment have the same effects? It strikes me that the conceptions of happiness can't be all that orthogonal. They may be slightly different, for sure. Um, and secondly, I've done some work looking at how closely you frame the question and how that affects um, the relationship between happiness and income versus other things. And the early studies in Easterlin's original paradox was based on open-ended life satisfaction or happiness questions, where you don't frame the question at all for the respondents. And the later studies by um, Deaton and by Stevenson and Walfers that find a closer relationship between average levels of GDP and happiness are based on a question in the Gallup Cole poll, which is um, the best possible life question. And it asks people, Imagine what is the best possible life you can imagine? How does your life compare to that best possible life? So it very much frames the conception of happiness into what is the best possible life I could have. Not is it what's the best possible life, I, what's the life I have, it's how does my life compare to the best possible life I could have. 
And it turns out that the answers to this question correlate much more closely with income than do answers to open-ended happiness questions, when people are allowed to just think of happiness in a more open-ended way in terms of what it means to them. So in Afghanistan, the most extreme example of this, I compared, I had both questions in the survey, as well as smiling yesterday. So Afghans are happier than the world average based on an open-ended life satisfaction question. They smiled more often yesterday than Cubans and you know, as, mu as often as Latin Americans. But when you, their be responses to a best possible life question are much lower than the world average. So you ask these same happy Afghans to compare their life to the best possible life, and then they don't score that well. They, you know, so they have a different response. I'm not sure if I fully answered you, but I, you know, it's, it's trying, to, trying to anyway. I, I wonder if it's worth mentioning that when there's a scale, there's, there's some words as well. There's a word, words at each end. So it's not that you just have to guess what what you mean by 0 to 10. It says extremely happy at one end. Right, and, and unhappy, unhappy at the other, the other end. Uh, yeah. Hang on. Hi there. I was just wondering what you thought about um, Bhutan's uh, gross national happiness index and whether or not it's a uh, viable alternative to GDP per capita. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big... Um, you know, as you know, I'm one of the people that was you know, involved in this field early on, so I obviously think that these happiness measures have a tremendous amount of merit. I, I don't think we should try and you know, toss out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, and decide that you know, now we're going to replace everything with happiness measures. So I think income data tell us a very important story about human well-being, but they miss a lot of things. And I think happiness measures tell us another important story about human well-being, but they also miss a lot of things. And so to throw out GDP measures and try and replace them with growth, gross national happiness would be weighting things in a direction um, that, you know, it's not clear that it's right or wrong, but it would be weighting things in a particular direction. I think the idea of having national well-being indicators or gross national happiness, whatever way you want to describe these indicators, as a complement to GDP, which is what the Sarkozy Commission is basically speaking to, um, is a wonderful idea because it gives us a way to track, you know, reported happiness and other quality of life measures uh, over time within the same country and see how these things change and what is mattering more or less to people and how they, um, and to track them across countries and to say, you know, so you can see does the environment matter more to, you know, Europeans' happiness and Americans' happiness, or is it the same, and is it just a question that environmental quality is worse in one place than another? There are all kinds of things that you could really begin to capture and look across both, you know, look within countries and across countries and com make comparisons that you also make with GNP per capita or in with GNP, um, but I would, I would see them as complementary measures. Good evening. My name is Vida Filmanovichuda. I'm from Baltic Vision Group. Uh, my question would be regard, well, a comment um, and a question at the same time regarding the uh, negative correlation between GDP growth and happiness. Um, well, from what I'm, from my knowledge, usually the greater the GDP growth is, the poorer the economy is. And there is a correlation between that where, where developed economies, um, GDP growth is usually lower than 
that of the economies that are underdeveloped. So that, and I'm wondering whether that has anything to do with the negative correlation between that and happiness. And um, if I may, I'll just say quickly, um, I remember looking at a, a table saying that, comparing that Russians were almost as happy as Americans, and I was very much surprised by that. But I've just read recently that people who want to leave their countries cannot be happy, and that was by Milan Kundera, one of the most famous emigre Czech writers of the 20th century. So have you studied that at all? in terms of immigration and happiness of the country. Thank you. Okay, well, here's your Russia answer. Um, Russia is here and the U.S. is there. It's the same survey, same question. So their happiness levels are not at all similar as far as I know and in any work I've done. Um, in terms of the growth question, um, there's some, some of what we find may be driven by rapid growth rates in Africa and Russia during the time period that it was looked at, both growing very quickly, both relatively unhappy places. Um, but then we also split the sample into countries above and below median income and into countries above and below median growth rates. And we find that in both cases, the finding is driven, or the finding holds for the countries above median income and for countries above median growth rates and not for those below. So it, it doesn't, at least that does, that exercise does not suggest that this is all driven by very poor countries growing quickly. And also, um, unfortunately, a lot of the very poor countries have not been growing very quickly in recent years. So that, um, and in terms of immigration and migration and happiness, that's a wonderful question. Um, Paul Collier and I have been talking about doing some work on this. Um, of some other colleagues of mine at Brookings are starting a study on immigration, and we're going to try and incorporate um, some well-being uh, indicators into those. The problem we have, at least if we were to look at the the, the well-being of most migrants across the world, migrants that, that leave their country and go into other countries, we would be able to get great data for the legal high-scaled migrants who are probably on average happier. Um, I don't know, but I would posit, and we would, be, we would have very poor data and very low reporting rates for illegal migrants who may probably do lead the worst lives. I mean, they, they make income gains when they go to new countries, but for all sorts of other reasons, including illegality, their lives have some very big negatives, and, and that, that would just be difficult to do accurately. I, I'm, so I'm not, it doesn't um, discount the importance of doing it, it just says that it's, it's going to be a difficult task. I wonder if you include religion into your survey. Do people who believe in God are happier than the ones who don't? Um, yeah, there's a lot of work on this, and we've looked at it a lot. And basically, people that report to have faith are, on average, happier than others. Now, there are a lot of caveats here. First of all, um, 
that does not hold in countries with extreme, more extreme religious divisions. It doesn't hold in Afghanistan, and it didn't hold for us in Central Asia. Um, it held in sort of Latin America, Europe, the US. And we also don't know if people who have faith are happy because they have faith, or are happy people, people likelier to believe in something beyond you know, this life. Um, so there's a causality problem. There are some studies, some very nice work by Andrew Clark and some colleagues on is it the actual having faith or is it maybe the socializing around religion or just being around religious people? And he does this again in the context of moderate religion in, in your, across European countries and he compares the happiness of Protestants and Catholics and atheists. And basically finds that all else equal, people with religion are happier than not. But then he also finds that even atheists are happier when they live in um, districts where there are more religious people around them. So it suggests that there's, you know, maybe they're happier, maybe they socialize more. I, I'm not sure. Um, he also finds that um, even even those of the opposite religion, so Protestants versus Catholic, are happier when they live. They're they're happier if they live with more Catholics around them than with more atheists around them. Um, at, but finds that I think the, pro, I, may, I hope I don't have this backwards, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, that Protestants are sort of happier regardless of whether it's Protestants or Catholics, and hap, Catholics are a little less happy if it's Protestants and Catholics, but not a huge, not a huge difference. Um, I'm interested just from a, a general person's point of view, and I think one of the most important um, factors to somebody's happiness is the quality of their relationships. Um, apart from the statistic about marriage and single people being generally unhappier, have you got any other evidence? I think surveys have been done about have you close friends, etc., have you got family that can support you? And um, I don't think you said anywhere near enough on stuff that can't be measured, really. Um, no, there's a lot of evidence that one that that in addition to these relationships, and it's not just marriage, it's having a stable partner, um, that having friends and family around you um, matter a lot, that different measures of social capital seem to correlate with happiness. Uh, again, that's, they're always tenuous, but they do. In Latin America, in a big quality of life study that we did, which was just paradox uh, published by Brookings as, as a book called Paradox and Perception, Understanding Quality of Life in Latin America, an edited book, one of the things we found based on the Gallup World Poll was that um, after having enough food, so this is more, more important than income, more important than health, more important than stable jobs, was having a friend or family member you could rely on at times of need. It was the most important factor to happiness in Latin America after having sufficient food. Um, when we break up our sample into above mean income and below mean income, or median income, sorry, so sort of roughly richer and poorer people, we find that work and health were more important to the happiness of the rich, and friendships were more important to the happiness of the poor. And if you think about that, it suggests that part of it is a socialization, you know, friendships matter finding, but part of it is a safety net, security finding. So the rich have enough assets that if something ha happens to them, they can rely on their assets. The poor don't. They need to have friends or family they can rely on. Um, so the, I think the finding holds for two reasons. One is the, the beneficial well-being effects of social, you know, having somebody to socialize with. 
And secondly, the kind of safety net sort of finding. Um, there have been a lot of um, comments, especially in the news recently, about how variable, volatile, and reliable financial markets are and so forth, and how unreliable the stock market is. So I was particularly struck by the graph you showed, which showed, seemed to suggest that the best possible life or happiness measure was even more volatile than the Dow index, which is an interesting idea. And I wonder whether that was correlated in particular. I mean, is it correlated with, say, time of day you do the survey, or the day of the week, or the weather, or anything like that? Is there any other, do you, or do you know any research on that? Yeah, we've done, um, we didn't look at the time of day, but what we did with this um, is we, we, we had a whole series, in addition to the Dow, we had a whole series of events, um, significant economic events and other events during the course of the crisis, everything from Obama's election to AIG declaring bankruptcy to a whole bunch of things, to Madoff being jailed, and we looked at the, the, the effects of, of different events on people and sort of how their reactions varied. And we really found that the most important thing was this overall trend. We also lagged, we, we, we tried different, did the event matter the day, more the day it was announced, a day after it was announced, two days after it was announced. Um, we basically was all about the same. So there's not really so much a timing of the survey thing. There are some very important differences across Samples. This is the average, right, for the United States. So this is just the average response. But when we broke up our sample, for example, into people that were in firms that were firing people and firms that were not firing people, you find that the firing people that in firms that aren't firing have this nice curve, just like the average. But people in firms that are firing people go down with the average, but then they stay flat. They don't come back up. In fact, this was really one weird thing. The only time or event that made the, f the people in firing firms go up was around the week of May 24th. The only event we could isolate around then was the finals of American Idol. I mean, why this would affect people in, non -firing, for in firing firms and not in non-firing firms, I don't know. I, there must be something else going on. But um, that was kind of the one spurious timing thing we found. But basically, yeah, this, this, just tra this kind of overall trend as the crisis hits and then the recovery trend seemed to dominate more than any other sort of s significant timing thing. Um, we also broke this up into Republicans and Democrats and all kinds of other things um, and, and with some interesting little tweaks, but, but mainly this trend is, is really what dominates. We'll have this one and then that one and then I think we'll have to stop. Um, I just have a question for you about whether happiness is a good thing, um, which is a um, the question of being Socrates dissatisfied or or an idiot more easily pleased. This is a difficulty. I think you hinted at with the problem of the pe the peasant that it can be happiness can be a bad thing. For example, if it if it encourages people to put up with intolerable. Uh, li or living circumstances that should be intolerable. And it strikes me that you, then you have good happiness and bad happiness and how you distinguish between the two. And this seems to be more of a philosophic question to me, but maybe perhaps there, you have devised an economic model that, uh, that could resolve this problem, but it seems to be a difficulty that you're grappling with. I think if I had, I'd win the Nobel Prize, but and I certainly have not. So. Um, 
but I would say that, that yes, it's a philosophical question, and there's sort of the Bentamite, you know, happiness is hedonistic utility concept, and then there's the sort of Aristotelian eudaimonia, which is kind of happiness is really all about life purpose, and, and you could actually, you would then be defining happiness not at all as contentment, but by much sort of much broader objectives. Um, so which is good happiness and which is bad happiness? I, I don't know. I think it's, at, you know, as I said, at some, at the individual survival level, it's probably good if you live in conditions of extreme adversity that you personally can't do anything about, if you can be content with those, it's probably better than being miserable with no out. However, if that leads to everybody not doing anything about it, then maybe it's not such a good thing. I, 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 I'm not, I can't really answer the question. I, I, I put the question out there, um, and I, I wish I knew the answer. Um, certainly, I, I doubt we would have had the French Revolution and the American Revolution and all kinds of other things, or some of the recent revolutions that have overthrown dictatorships without some unhappiness. So. Last, last question, better be easier. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting tired, no. Yeah, it's a slightly personal question. Um, since you're an expert in happiness science and you know about the influence factors and, and uh, norms, adaptation, how did your life adapt to your own results? <laughs> how did my life adapt to my own results? Well, I suppose, here I'll give you, an, I'll give you a happy answer. Um, I'm supposed to be at the bottom of that curve, but I, I'm, I'm really a very happy person. So if I'm getting happier than this, it's a pretty good story. Very good.